0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I've been doing a series over the last few weeks from 1 Corinthians, and I've called it Hot Potatoes from 1 Corinthians, and what I'm doing is just taking some texts out of Corinthians that... As you read them, you know uh, um, they—they are difficult to swallow. Some of them they are hard to handle, and most often, as in hot potatoes, we avoid them. Uh, We toss them to somebody else. We ignore them. But as students of the Scripture, as followers of Jesus, it's not enough to be able to just ignore passages (laughs) that don't quite fit with our way of thinking. You have to delve into them and say, "What's going on here? What's this all about?" And so, so far we've kind of introduced the series, I've talked about the difference between the individualism of our Western culture compared with the corporate accountability and responsibility that were present in, um, in the early scriptural writings and at the church at Corinth. Last week we discussed the issue of sex as Paul raised it, and this morning I want to talk to you about the role of woman in the new community. Uh, It was most definitely a hot potato in that particular issue and remains so to our day um, to some degree as is evidenced by the ongoing debate in many mainline churches about whether women can have a priestly role or what they can and can't do. So I'm gonna start by reading a couple of very difficult passages. Um, hang, hang in there, don't get up halfway through and walk out in disgust. Give me a chance to talk about them. Um, but the first one's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, and it's verse two through verse 16, where Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is." God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or a head shaved, then she should cover her head a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God but the woman is the glory of man for man did not come from woman but woman from man neither was man created for woman but woman for man it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her head because of the angels you just want to stop there and go can I turn can I turn to the Psalms or the Proverbs or something simple you know Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Then, skipping a couple of chapters into 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 34 to 38, it says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Amen. No, the Greek doesn't say that, okay. Or did the woman originate with you or did the word originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command, but if anyone ignores this they will themselves be ignored. Oh my goodness. You sometimes wonder about these passages, don't you? Think, what on earth was Paul smoking behind the bike shed? These are not exactly passages that in our culture at least are designed to win friends or influence people. And many people have read Paul's epistles, notably this one, and probably the one to, uh, first epistle to Timothy, and have concluded that Paul was just a misogynistic pig. A woman hater that was in favor of a patriarchal form of government at home, in the church, and in society in general. And I guess, you know, when you read it at a superficial glance, The text could lead a person to that kind of conclusion, to the fact that Paul really did have a problem with women. And actually, some people have given the text much more than a superficial glance and have arrived at that conclusion, that that's what Paul did think. Um, The view that leadership should be a male-only sphere and that women should be in submission to men or at least to their husbands and face some restrictions on full participation in the new community, I'm going to call the traditionalist view. So when I refer to the traditionalist view through the rest of the talk, this is what what I'm talking about. And I call it the traditional view simply because it has been the view that has dominated the church for much, much of her history. Now, if you talk to some traditionalists, they would be very quick to tell you that redemptively men and women are equal. Their point would be that functionally we are different, that we are for called to fulfill different roles. And so they would say men are called to lead, women are called to submit. Let me, let me give you a couple of quotes from um, well-known, well-respected traditionalists. Uh, one says God has invested the man with spiritual authority to decide, in the light of Holy Scripture, what course of action will most glorify God and His family. Another says the man's role in the family has him standing in the place of Christ to act as Christ and for Christ with respect to his wife. Th- those are fairly familiar views that come out of the traditionalists, uh, out of the traditionalist camp, and the Corinthian correspondence is often cited in, uh, in proof of, of that kind of view. The passages that I read to you this morning are quoted as being proof of this view. Now I think there are a number of significant objections that stand in the way of claiming actually that Paul held that view. Firstly, um, the passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is an exceptionally difficult passage to understand. Nearly all scholars admit that, and we're left guessing much of the time really what Paul was talking about, and many of the commentaries that I've read that try and unpack the passage use or end up resorting to language like um, perhaps or possibly, because the reality is in some passages more than others, and this is one more than others, um, we are left finding our way in the dark. Um, It does seem clear that Paul was addressing social issues and customs that don't easily translate into our time and our world. So William Barclay suggests this is one of those passages that has a purely local and temporal significance. While G. Campbell Morgan, one of the great scholars of the 20th century, said, Corinthian conditions are clearly in view. Now, Now that might sort of sound like they're saying, ignore it. It doesn't have anything to do with us. Um, I'm not sure that we should actually take that route, since if we simply dismiss the things in Scripture that we don't understand, we could be left up. With, we could be left with a very small Bible. We actually have to do the hard work of trying as best we might uh, to unpack the meaning of what Paul is saying. What I would say here is we should be aware of building doctrine and practice on what amount to very obscure texts. If you build doctrine on obscure texts, you might well end up trying to baptise dead people, a la 1 Corinthians 15, 29. If you don't know what that is, have a read after and get more confused. Or perhaps insisting that women wear hats in church because of the angels as per this text. So it's a very difficult passage. A second objection to the traditionalist view of these passages, um, that that there is a hierarchical uh, structure of authority um, with God, men, and woman underneath, doesn't seem to match what Paul teaches in other places and certainly doesn't match with his praxis in the churches that he planted. All the available evidence, and we have a good deal of it, indicate that women played an active role in ministering and leading in the early Pauline communities. If if you want to take the time, sometime read Romans chapter 16. You know, initially you just think it's Paul signing off and there's not much in the chapter, perhaps the most boring chapter of all the book of Romans, but it's a fascinating chapter. In the chapter, he mentions 29 people by name and and, and nearly a third of them are women. And he says some really interesting things about these women. For example, in verse 1 and 2, he talks about a woman called Phoebe who is a deacon and a helper of many, it says. That, that great Greek word that's translated by our word helper, it's the word prostatus. And it comes from a word that's used in 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, where it says, let the elders rule. And, and the Greek word there is proisteme, that the two words are related. Let the elders rule well. So here's this woman, Phoebe, who is a patron. She has some aspect or some dimension of rulership, of leadership in the Pauline community. A little further on, in verse 3, we are introduced to Priscilla and Aquila. This couple are mentioned as Paul's fellow workers. They were a husband and wife team that are mentioned six times in the New Testament. And on four of those occasions, Priscilla, the woman, her name is mentioned first, which is somewhat unusual in a patriarchal culture. Many scholars believe that the fact that her name was mentioned first means that she played a more prominent role in terms of their joint ministry. In verse 7 of that chapter, we're introduced to Junia, who is mentioned as being of note among the apostles. Junia is a female, in spite of the fact that some scholars without any historical basis have tried to change the name to Junia to make it a man. There is no basis for that. This is a woman, and she's described as being apostolic. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul exhorts two key female leaders, Euodia and Syntyche, to reconcile their differences for the sake of the well-being of their community. They, they obviously were playing a leading role. They had come to a point of conflict, and Paul is saying leaders ought to resolve the conflict as best they're able for the health of the community. And please don't even try and suggest that such a conflict indicates that women shouldn't be in leadership. Remember Paul and Barnabas? If 1 Corinthians is Paul urging the non-participation of women in leadership and public worship, then Paul is something of a theological chameleon. On the one hand he says this, on the other he does that. And I tell you, anybody who's that blatant in terms of their, um, the, the difference between what they say and what they speak isn't actually that credible on any subject. So Paul's teaching and practice seem to differ if you take the hierarchical, patriarchal uh, note from one Corinthians and try and extend that. I would want to argue, actually, that Paul's teaching and practice are not at odds at all, and he does not endorse this traditionalist view that so many do. The heart of Paul's teaching on women is actually very, very plain. It's easily grasped. Galatians chapter three verse two. Uh, 28. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, in this new community, if a Gentile can exercise ministry and leadership as freely as a Jew can, if a slave can exercise ministry and leadership as freely as a free man can, then a woman can exercise ministry and leadership as freely as a man can. That's very hard to get away from. Paul preached, actually, a radically egalitarian message in which all are equally valued, equally enabled. Remember Acts? I'll pour out my spirit on men and women, sons and daughters. Equally valued, equally enabled, and they are equal participants in this new community. And that's his basic principle, developed, I might say, out of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus really did have something to say about the equality of woman. I'm not going to go into that because this is on 1 Corinthians. But Paul was building on Jesus' example and teaching. And his basic principle is there's, there's, we are equally valued, equally enabled, we're equal participants. That being the basic principle, any passage that seems to be difficult or restrictive has to be passed through the filter of what is clear. A basic hermeneutical principle is that you examine difficult passages through the lens of clear ones, not vice versa. This is the clear passage, and the incredibly difficult passage of 1 Corinthians 11 needs to be fed through that filter and not vice versa. Paul's radical egalitarianism comes out in other passages. For example, I read this last week, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, talking about sexuality within the marriage, Paul says this, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to the wife. Now listen, the Greco-Roman world was marked by the unilateral subordination of women to men. And so the first part of that verse where it says the wife doesn't have authority over her own body was assumed in that world. It was not in any way, shape, or form earth-shaking they all assumed that but the second half of the verse is so explosively countercultural that it would have been breathtaking to the readers Paul says and the husband does not have authority over his own body but he yields it to his wife that that is so countercultural male domination patriarchy is replaced by a relationship of mutuality a little bit further on he 's talking about the possibility of fasting and abstaining from sexual relations for a period and he says don 't deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time. That phrase, mutual consent, was revolutionary in that era. Women woman weren't consulted at all. This is not the husband making decisions for his wife, acting as and in the place of Christ, as the traditionalists would claim. This is a relationship of mutuality where they agree together. You know, the difficult passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 11 isn't about gender subordination. In my view, it's about gender differentiation, and I'll tell you why. Actually, N.T. Wright suggests that Paul's radical message of egalitarianism may have actually contributed, if not caused, the problems that he's now trying to address. It seems as if some of these Corinthian women had taken the message of equality and freedom so literally that when they prayed and prophesied in the gathering, which Paul assumed they would do regularly, by the way, they had decided to remove their head coverings and perhaps let down their braided hair to show that in Christ they were free from the normal social conventions by which men and women were distinguished in their world. I think perhaps what happened was that they were pushing the truth of freedom beyond a balancing point. You know, if you visit different cultures even today, you'll discover many subtle assumptions and pressures and constraints in that society, some of which appear in the way people uh, dress or in the way that people wear their hair. If you travel, you see that. It's, it's, It's the same as in Paul's world. Gender was marked and distinguished by hair and clothing styles. We, we know from, from statues, from vase paintings, from other artwork of that period, that there were uh, appropriate distinctions sexually in, in the culture. Women of this time, both Jewish and Roman, wore head coverings when they went out in public. No self-respecting woman of that time would be seen in public without a head covering. That's still true today in the Middle East, in conservative Islamic uh, uh, cultures, and even in Amish communities. One scholar said this, appropriate head coverings for a respectable Roman woman served as a protection of her dignity and status as a woman not to be propositioned. A woman who went out in public unveiled, forfeited the protection of Roman law against possible attackers who were entitled to plead extenuating circumstances. The Mishnah, which is a written collection of Jewish oral tradition, said a woman could be divorced if she went out uncovered in public. To show her hair in public in that culture was regarded as um, inappropriate exposure Now, this is hard for us to understand, but in that time, a woman's loose hair, unbraided hair, was seen as very sexually alluring. So the Babylonian Talmud, a rabbi, says a woman's hair is a sexual incitement. So a woman's hair was only to be seen by her husband. And in Corinth, in Paul's time, the only woman who appeared in public without some form of head covering and often with their heads shaved were prostitutes. In the heady flush of freedom in Christ, some of these Corinthian women, some of the believers, had concluded that if men could pray and prophesy in public with uncovered hair heads, they were free to follow suit and do the same. Now it had, as you might imagine, created an outcry. It had created quite a disturbance. And, and people were asking, are these women advertising their charms? How are we supposed to concentrate on worship with this going on? And again, you know, I say to us in the 21st century, for us to grasp that a woman's hair uncovered could cause such an outrage or be sexually alluring kind of as completely over our heads, no pun intended. This could perhaps, however, be analogous to us turning up to church to find out that most of the women were wearing bikinis Imagine the email and social media traffic after that Sunday. That's probably equivalent to what was going on. I really like Kenneth Bailey's paraphrase of this passage. He says this, Let the men and women continue to pray and prophesy, only ladies, please be reasonable. Cover your heads as you do. Don't send the wrong message to the worshippers, male and female. Don't distract them with your beautiful hair. You must know, he says, that a woman's hair exposed in public is seen as a come on in sections of society in which you live. I'm asking for sensitivity to your cultural setting. Love for harmony in the community must be a key part of how you exercise your freedom. This, this is an incredibly difficult passage to interpret, as I said to you, but in verse 10, Paul tosses in a real curve, Paul. And he says this, for this re- for, for, It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And you want to read, whoa, stop. What? Who are the angels? And why would they care if these women had head coverings or not? Well, it's incredibly difficult to know what Paul's talking about. One scholar called Bruce Winter has advanced a theory that I think is as plausible as any and better than most. He says this, the word angel in the Greek is angelos, and it just simply means a messenger. And it requires words of modification to specify the genus, the, whether, whether we're talking about supernatural messengers or just human messengers. So obviously there are times when Angelos is used to describe angelic messengers, as in Gabriel or or perhaps Michael. However, there are equally as many times when the exact same word is used and the messenger is clearly a human one. So for example, in Luke chapter 7 and verse 24, when John the Baptist sends people to Jesus to ask, are you the one? It says, when the messengers of John had departed and gone back to him, Angelos, the the messengers. Now, Winter argues that in Corinth, the status conscious people of high society would never just turn up to a Christian gathering. They would send a messenger, an Angelos. They would send a servant to see whether it was appropriate for them. To be able to attend those meetings. If the angelos, if the messenger discovered that these Christians were having meetings in which women were letting their hair down, and one wonders if that phrase has come from this passage, as so many phrases in our society do, these women were letting their hair down, they would have been scandalized. And the opportunity for effective evangelism would have been lost. Wear the head coverings because of the messengers. Paul is saying. Paul is the consummate missionary. He achieves and aims for this amazing balance between endorsing the freedom that Christ brings, that is, equal value, equal participation of men and women. He establishes that and encourages it, and yet he curtails that freedom in terms of their attire and, and says, listen, dressing that way isn't advantageous for others or for the sake of the gospel. You know even today we refer to the the principle of what we call contextualization and all missionaries understand that every missionary understands that going into a fresh mission setting their freedom may be curtailed by the priority of love they may have to do things that actually aren't required biblically but they do it for the sake of allowing the gospel to go forth in that community in an acceptable way you know, to insist that women must wear hats in a 21st century church to show that they are in submission to their husband and specifically, you know, um, or to men generally or to wom- their husband specifically. And because of the angels, it's completely to misconstrue this text. I mean, for a start, we're not talking about hats. Okay, it's just, it's just I'm sorry if you're ex-brethren and you still kind of have a leaning that way. I don't want to offend you. I'm probably going to, though, aren't I? Because it's nonsense. It's clearly not what it's talking about. Now, I could hear somebody saying to me, but Don, it does seem to me on reading this passage that Paul actually is arguing for male-dominated authority structures. Forget the hat stuff. Forget all that difficult stuff about head coverings. Just look at verse 3, Don. It says, man is the head of woman. Aren't you ignoring the obvious? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. It's easy to assume that that's obvious, but is it? And the key question that you have to ask is what does Paul mean by the term head? Does he mean what you assume he means? The Greek word is actually a word kephale, and it has three possibilities in terms of what it could mean. Number one, it could be speaking about the literal head, the cranium, as in the sentence my head hurts. It can be used metaphorically to describe somebody who is in authority over another, as in the sentence, she is the head of the company or he is the headmaster of the school. Metaphorically, also, it can be used to describe something that is the source of the or the origin of something else, as in the sentence, the Waikato River has its headwaters in Lake Taupo. Plato. Uh, around this time, use kephalae to describe the beginning of an argument or a story. And a very strong case can be made for three rather than one or two. Gordon Fee, Bishop N.T. Wright, Kenneth Bailey, among others, make that case. The Greek lexicon by Scott and Little and Kittel's Theological Dictionary all concur that authority or superior rank is not the primary meaning of this Greek word kephalae. If superior rank or boss over was the idea that Paul intended to convey, then there's another Greek word, akon, which would actually have conveyed that without confusion. Gordon Fee says, the metaphorical use of kephale to mean chief or person of highest rank is actually very, very rare in Greek literature. And Fee claims that Paul's use of this metaphor, and almost certainly the one that the Corinthians would have understood, was that Paul was talking about head as source. For example, the Jewish new year is called Rosh Hashanah, which literally means the head of the year. The first day of the year is not in authority or the boss of the rest of the year. Roshanah means that the first day is the origin or the source or the unfolding of the rest of the year. In Psalm 111 verse 10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of or the source of wisdom. That, that's what this word means. The idea clearly is source, not Boss. Paul's concern in this passage is not some hierarchical structure of authority. It's not about who's the boss or who's in charge. It's much more a reference to chronology and the creational flow. For example, in verse 3 where it says, the head or source of every man is Christ. That's a reference to the fact that the first man, Adam, came into existence through the creative work of Christ. All things were made by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. He's the head of the man. Then it says the head or the source of the woman is the man. This refers to the fact that the first woman Eve was formed out of the side of the man. Then it says the head uh, or the source of Christ is God. Now that's not some reference to preeminence and subordination within the Trinity. It simply has to do with the work of the incarnation. Jesus himself said in John 8:42, I proceeded forth and came from the Father. This talk of headship is not vertical. It's, it's, it's not about who is first, primacy, or who is the boss, authority. It's not, it's not talking about those things. Some of you may have been here many, many years ago when I made one of the great faux pas of my ministry when I was talking about primacy, and I was talking about the fact that the Bible says man was created first, and from that, many people have assumed, therefore, he is superior, he is the boss. And I was trying to argue from Genesis that actually the flow of creation is from chaos to order. And that if you're gonna argue about primacy, you have to face the possibility that actually Eve was the improved model. And foolishly, I, I don't know why I did it, I talked about the fact that, you know, all of us know what it is to develop a prototype car and then from there on we get the improvements in the car. This is the basic model, but this model has a sunroof, mud flaps on its, on its wheels, it has ABS, ABS braking, and then I said and it has dual airbags. And at that point, I might as well have pronounced the benediction and just gone home, because everything from there was downhill. But apart from the stupidity of the illustration, you know, that passage, you have to grapple with this idea of of perhaps primacy doesn't mean since you're created first, you're better than, because if that's true, then the animals in the plant kingdom are obviously better than because they were creative. Sometimes we use the scriptures in ways that really are, are not that logical. For example, I've heard many people argue that Jesus had 12 disciples and they were all men. I've heard very few people say, Jesus had 12 disciples and they were all Jewish men. We, we, we say that women can't have a role of leadership because the disciples were all men, but I've never ever heard anybody say, and leadership should be reserved for Jewish men. We, we, don't, we aren't consistent. We aren't logical. We take things and we use them really poorly. So this isn't about primacy or authority. I think the message translation sums it up very well when, when Eugene Peterson says this, verses 10 to 12. Don't, by the way, read too much into the differences here between men and women. Neither man nor woman can go it alone or claim priority. Man was created first as the beautiful shining reflection of God. That is true. But the head on a woman's body clearly outshines the beauty uh, in, the, in beauty the head of her head, her husband. The first woman came from man, true. But ever since then, every man comes from a woman. And since virtually everything comes from God anyway, let's quit going through these "whose first routines. <laughs> Isn't that a brilliant translation? It's a paraphrase, not a translation, I know. But. but I hear someone say, Don, what about 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 38? Surely that passage indicates rather plainly that women have a subordinate role in at least the public gatherings. They're told to be quiet. So many questions. You are such an inquisitive bunch. <laughs> Look, I know these verses have been used over the years to cloak and choke the possibility of public ministry for women. However, again, beyond the superficial reading of the passage, there's clearly something else happening here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul positively anticipates both men and women praying and prophesying publicly. So why in later verses would he make an attempt to stop the woman? I mean, is he being the chameleon again? Verse 34 says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They must be in submission, as the law says. Problem, the law does not say that. So what is Paul talking about? There is no reference that this is quoting from the Mosaic law. On the contrary, the Mosaic law has lots of examples of godly women speaking out, from Miriam to Deborah to hold other prophetess. Women are encouraged to speak rather than told to be quiet. Psalm 68 verse 11 says, the Lord announces the word and the women who proclaim it are a mighty throng." The law referred to is not the Mosaic law. There is no such quote. So what law are we talking about? And what is Paul saying? Well, it's probably a reference to the oral law, which was the law that the Pharisees built around the Mosaic law. And and the oral law wasn't inspired in the same way that Matthew Henry's commentary on the Bible isn't inspired either. It might be illuminating at times, but it's not God-breathed. And Jesus often clashed with the Pharisees about the place and teaching of the oral law. You know what? There's a very good argument to be made here that this is another instance of Paul actually quoting what the Corinthians have written to him as he talks back to them. So William Ramsey said this, we should be ready to suspect Paul is making a quotation from the letter addressed to him by the Corinthians when any statement stands in marked contrast to either the immediate context or Paul's known views. And this verse stands in contrast to both those things. It's most likely that Paul's actually quoting what they are saying. Verse thirty-four says, "It is not permitted that they are a, they that they speak." It doesn't say Paul doesn't say, "I don't permit them to speak," but it seems that you are saying they're not permitted to speak, indicating that Paul's not prohibiting them from speaking, but somebody else is. Who might that somebody be? Well, most likely the same Judaizers that followed Paul wherever he went, trying to make the Gentile converts Jewish and fit into their understanding of the Jewish law, to be circumcised, to, to, you know, to have the woman quiet. Paul is, the next verses, by the way, and I won't go into them for the sake of time, Paul bluntly re- uh, rejects that demand. He basically says, stop that. If that doesn't convince you, then you look at the word that's used there in the Greek, Um, for the woman to keep silent. It's it's a a word siga'o, and it doesn't mean mute or speechless. It's the same word that's used elsewhere in this passage. And when you're trying to find out the meaning of a word, when you find it in the same passage used, it's incredibly helpful to understand what it might mean. So in verse 28, Paul's talking to the prophets and he says, listen, if somebody speaks in tongues and there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet, siga'o. And in verse 30, if, if, if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first prophet keep sigael, keep quiet. Paul isn't saying, never speak, ever, be mute. He's talking about well-ordered, restrained, disciplined speech. He's, it, this is a wait your turn kind of word, not a keep quiet, never open your mouth. You could say, but don't. I've read 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11 through 15, and there Paul tells the woman to keep quiet too. How are you going to get out of that? You know what? I'm getting tired of your questions. (laughs) And I'll answer this last one for you. The only imperative in this passage is let a woman learn. Okay, now that's interesting. That's as countercultural as a woman has authority over a man's body. Because in this culture, women weren't allowed to learn. They weren't taught the Torah. It was forbidden to teach them the Torah. But this command has positive implications. You know, the story of Mary and Martha. Most often we, we think about that, you know, Mary's distracted in the kitchen and Martha's sitting, uh, sorry, m- m- vice versa, Martha's distracted in the kitchen, Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, and, and, and we tend to sort of interpret this as the busy person and the contemplative person, and Jesus likes the contemplative person and says, in all your busyness, don't forget to, to, to look to me. There's aspects of that, that that's fine, but that really wasn't what was going on. What was going on there is Mary is invading the men's space. She's invading their social space, which was a cultural no-no, In that that instance, and in many places around the world, men and women are kept separate. You you go to the church in Nepal, as some of you are going to in a couple of weeks' time, you'll find that the men sit on one side, the women sit on another side. It's the way things work. There's social spaces. And we, we know enough, you know, just in our culture, what social space is acceptable for us to walk into and what social space is not acceptable for us to walk into. And Mary had violated this and gone into the men's social space, and Jesus says she's done the right thing because he's setting up the scene for this radically egalitarian new community. So the only imperative in this passage, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, is let a woman learn. They're not only to be homemakers, seen but not heard. They're equally valued, equally enabled, equal participants. This represents a striking departure from the social attitudes of Paul's day. The phrase, by the way, in silence, is unjustified. The Greek word hesukia does not mean be quiet and don't talk. It's also used in the same passage, just a few verses earlier on, where Paul talks about praying for people and he says, pray for kings and all who are in high places that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. That's the same Greek word, hesukia. It doesn't mean that we should lead a life in which we never talk, in which we go around mute. Again, the idea is well disciplined speech, well ordered speech. We're not talking about a woman being muzzled, we're talking about her speech being well ordered, which in fact is appropriate for all believers, male and female. And then the phrase, with all submission. Paul doesn't qualify the object of su- su- such submission. He does not say, let a woman learn in silence, in submission to her husband or to the men. It's, it doesn't specify what she's to be in submission to. It's much more likely that Paul is thinking of the teaching that she is receiving. Let her be in submission to the word that is being preached, which could easily be said of men. Now, I know the role of woman is a hot potato for many people. I've preached this sermon many years ago, and I had people leave the church over it. One person just said, no man's going to tell me how to run my household. I am the head of my household. I'm thinking, right over his head. And I understand there are strong feelings about this, but I think the message of the New Testament, actually, difficult passages aside, and you delve into them, and they start to make sense, But the difficult passages aside, the message is clear. Men and women are equally valued. Men and women are equally enabled. Men and women are equal participants in the new community. Let me conclude by reading to you Kenneth Bailey's paraphrase of Paul's thrust in 1 Corinthians on the role of women in the new community. He says this, men and women have gifts that they share together and prophecy is among them. Those with this gift should participate together in the leadership of worship when doing so, do not dress in a manner that leads people to misunderstand or in any way distract them from the task of being faithful uh, of being faithful in the presence of God. Both men and women are created in the image of God, and in the Lord, you are equal and mutually interdependent. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.